So today we are going to be talking about emptiness, sunyata. And uh, what we will be discussing, there are three types of emptiness understood from the Nikayas. There is the emptiness of self, emptiness of what is not present, and the great liberation through emptiness. Today we're going to touch upon two of those. The first is emptiness of what is not present and emptiness of self. Tomorrow we will discuss the liberation through emptiness. So I'll be reading two suttas. The first sutta, which is Majjhima Nikaya 121, 1 to 1, Chula Sunyata Sutta, the shorter discourse on voidness. Thus have I heard on one occasion the Blessed One was living at Savati in the eastern park in the palace of Megara's mother. Then when it was evening, the Venerable Ananda rose from meditation, went to the Blessed One, and after paying homage to him, he sat down at one side and said to the Blessed One, Venerable Sir, on one occasion, the Blessed One was living in the Sakyan country where there is a town of the Sakyans named Nagaraka. There, Venerable Sir, Venerable Sir I heard and learned this from the Blessed One's own lips. Now, Ananda, I often abide in voidness or emptiness. Did I hear that correctly, Venerable Sir? Did I learn that correctly, attend to that correctly, remember that correctly? Certainly, Ananda, certainly, Ananda you heard that correctly, learned that correctly, attended to that correctly, remembered that correctly. As formerly, Ananda, so now do I often abide in voidness. Ananda, just as this palace of Megara's mother is void of elephants, cattle, horses, and mares, void of gold and silver, void of the assembly of men and women, and there is present only this non-voidness, Namely, the singleness dependent on the Sangha of bhikkhus. So too, a bhikkhu not attending to the perception of village, not attending to the perception of people, attends to the singleness dependent on the perception of forest. His mind enters into that perception of forest and acquires confidence steadiness and resolution. He understands whatever disturbances there might be dependent on the perception of village. Those are not present here. Whatever disturbances there might be dependent on the perception of people. Those are not present here. There is present only this amount of disturbance, namely the singleness dependent on the perception of forest. He understands this field of perception is void of the perception of village. 
this, this field of perception is void of the perception of people. There is present only this non-voidness, namely the singleness dependent on the perception of forests. Thus he regards it as void of what is not there. But as to what remains, there he understands that which is present thus. This is present. Thus, Ananda, this is his genuine, undistorted, pure descent into voidness. So this is the emptiness or voidness of what is not present. Here the Buddha gives an example. There is the palace of Megara's mother where they are staying. And it has all of these different items. right? And then this palace of Megara's mother is empty of horses, empty of cattle, empty of certain elements. In the same way, when one goes into the forest... Their perception is only of being in the forest. It is empty of the perception of being in a village, empty of a perception of the perception of being with people. And so that one, that person is aware of what is present in the mind and what is not present in the mind. What is present in the mind is the perception of forest. What is not present in the mind is the perception of people, of the village. Again, again, Ananda, a bhikkhu, not attending to the perception of people, not attending to the perception of forest, attends to the singleness dependent on the perception of earth. His mind enters into that perception of earth and acquires confidence, steadiness, and resolution. Just as a bull's hide becomes free from folds when fully stretched with a hundred pegs, so too a bhikkhu not attending to any of the ridges and hollows of the earth, to the rivers and ravines, the tracts of stumps and thorns, the mountains and uneven places, attends to the singleness dependent on the perception of earth. His mind enters into that perception of earth and acquires confidence, steadiness, and resolution. He understands thus, whatever disturbance that disturbances there might be dependent on the perception of people, those are not present here. Whatever disturbances there might be dependent on the perception of forest, those are not present here. There is present only this amount of disturbance, namely the singleness dependent on the perception of earth. Thus he regards it as void of what is not there, but as to what remains there, he understands that which is present thus. This is present. Thus, Ananda, this too is his genuine, undistorted, pure descent into voidness. Now here, what he's talking about is, okay, now here the bhikkhu is in the forest. And then there is the mountains, the ridges, the hollows, the ravines, and all of that. All of the different aspects of earth. Then the bhikkhu connects with what is the earth element. Taking the earth element, he perceives the earth element internally and externally. 
and he turns it into a casina. Okay? Now the word casina traditionally has denoted that it is a point of single focus. It is an object of single focus. But actually the word casina means to be whole. And therefore you are actually expanding the perception of earth. In other words, he takes that perception of earth and he pervades his mind with that perception of earth. And so when he does this, his mind is void or empty of the perception of the aspects of earth and only is present in the mind, the earth element. So as he spreads out this earth element, this casina, he then experiences the next stage, which is what we'll talk about. Again, Ananda, a bhikkhu, not attending to the perception of forest, not attending to the perception of earth, attends to the singleness dependent on the perception of the base of infinite space. His mind enters into that perception of the base of infinite space and acquires confidence, steadiness, and resolution. He understands thus whatever disturbances there might be dependent on the perception of forest. Those are not present here. Whatever disturbances there might be dependent on the perception of earth, those are not present here. There is present only this amount of disturbance, namely the singleness dependent on the perception of the base of infinite space. He understands this field of perception is void of the perception of forest. This field of perception is void of the perception of earth. There is present only this non-voidness, namely the singleness dependent on the perception of the base of infinite space. Thus he regards it as void of what is not there. But as to what remains there, he understands that which is present thus. This is present. Thus, Ananda, this too is his genuine, undistorted, pure descent into voidness. So when you are experiencing the meditation, you are perceiving what is present in your mind and what is not present in your mind. If the mind is filled with hindrances, there is present hindrances. When you use the six R's to let go of hindrances, you understand your mind to be void of hindrances. And what is present there, the non-voidness, what is present there is the object of meditation, loving kindness. As you progress through your practice, you understand there is present now joy. There is present now thinking and examining thought. There is present now sukha. There is present now comfort in the body. There is present now ekagata. In other words, you are aware of the different factors of the first jhana. When you enter the second jhana, you are aware of what is empty in the second jhana. The second jhana is empty of thinking and examining thought. When you enter the third jhana, you become aware of what is present and what is not present, what is empty. The third jhana is empty of the joy, of the piti, of the second jhana. 
But what is present are the factors of the third jhana. Likewise, when you get to the fourth jhana, you become aware of what is present and what is not present. What is empty in the fourth jhana, or with the fourth jhana, let's say, is empty of the factors of the third jhana, namely the sukha, the comfort in the body. But what is present there is the pure mindfulness due to equanimity. And, of course, the object of meditation and other factors of the jhana. As your mind starts to become more radiant, starts to send out the loving-kindness in all directions, then it starts to become aware of what is present and what is not present. What is the fifth jhana or infinite space empty of? Empty of the perceptions of form, perceptions of sensory impact. But it is aware of what is present, the perception of infinite space, the feeling of infinite space, imbued with the feeling of loving-kindness or compassion. Again, Ananda, Ibhiku, not attending to the perception of earth, not attending to the perception of the base of infinite space, attends to the singleness dependent on the perception of the base of infinite consciousness. His mind enters into that perception of the base of infinite consciousness and acquires confidence, steadiness, and resolution. He understands thus, whatever disturbances there might be dependent on the perception of earth, those are not present here. Whatever perceptions, whatever disturbances there might be dependent on the perception of the base of infinite space, those are not present here. There is present only this amount of disturbance, namely the singleness dependent on the perception of the base of infinite consciousness. He understands this field of perception is void of the perception of earth. This field of perception is void of the perception of the base of infinite space. There is present only this non-voidness, namely the singleness dependent on the perception of the base of infinite consciousness. Thus, he regards it as void of what is not there. But as to what remains there, he understands that which is present thus. This is present. Thus, Ananda, this too is his genuine, undistorted, pure descent into voidness. As you start to radiate compassion, that compassion changes to mudita, to empathetic joy. And then that transitions to an experience of infinite consciousness. So your mindfulness is such that you become aware of what the mind is empty of, but of what also is present in the mind. In other words, you see that now the mind is void or empty of the perception of the base of infinite space. But it is aware of what is present, which is the base of infinite consciousness tied to empathetic joy. Again, Ananda, Ibhiku, not attending to the perception of the base of infinite space, not attending to the perception of the base of infinite consciousness, attends to the singleness dependent on the perception of the base of nothingness. His mind enters into that perception of the base of nothingness and acquires confidence, steadiness, and resolution. 
He understands thus, whatever disturbances there might be dependent on the perception of the base of infinite space, those are not present here. Whatever disturbances there might be dependent on the perception of the base of infinite consciousness, those are not present here. There is present only this amount of disturbance, namely the singleness dependent on the perception of the base of nothingness. He understands this field of perception is void of the perception of the base of infinite space. This field of perception is void of the perception of the base of infinite consciousness. There is present only this non-voidness, namely the singleness dependent on the perception of the base of nothingness. Thus he regards it as void of what is not there. But as to what remains there, remains there, he understands that which is present thus. This is present. Thus, Ananda, this too is his genuine, undistorted, pure descent into voidness. Now the feeling of empathetic joy naturally, automatically changes to upeka, to equanimity. And then the mind becomes void or empty of the base of infinite consciousness. And then there is present in that field of perception. When they say field of perception, they are talking about the mind's attention. Now the mind attends to that which is present, which is the perception of the base of nothingness tied to equanimity. Again, Ananda, a bhikkhu not attending to the perception of the base of infinite consciousness, not attending to the perception of the base of nothingness, attends to the singleness dependent on the perception of the base of neither perception nor non-perception. His mind enters into that perception of the base of neither perception nor non-perception. Say that five times. and acquires confidence, steadiness, and resolution. He understands thus, whatever disturbances there might be dependent on the perception of the base of infinite consciousness, those are not present here. Whatever disturbances there might be dependent on the perception of the base of nothingness, those are not present here. There is present only this amount of disturbance, Namely, the singleness dependent on the perception of the base of neither perception nor non-perception. He understands this field of perception, the mind, is void of the perception of the base of infinite consciousness. This field of perception is void of the base of the perception of the base of nothingness. There is present only this non-voidness, namely... The singleness dependent on the perception of the base of neither perception nor non-perception. Thus he regards it as void of what is not there, meaning what is not there is the emptiness. But as to what remains there, he understands that which is present. Thus, this is present. Thus, Ananda, this too is his genuine, undistorted, pure descent into voidness. Now, the Upeka... When you radiate the upeka, when you radiate the equanimity, soon the mind starts to taper off. That, set, that energy of radiating starts to slow down. And then it stops. 
and there is present only this field of perception that is the mind itself. We call this quiet mind. In the beginning, it might not be too quiet. But when you get to this quiet mind, don't do anything. Don't try to figure out what is this mind. Don't try to figure out what is this sankara arising. Don't try to figure out what is that thought coming up. Don't try to figure out where should I be resting. Don't try to figure out what should I be observing. Don't do anything. There is present only this mind. And tied to that, there is present the base of neither perception nor non-perception. You become aware of the base of neither perception or non-perception when you have that feeling or that experience where mind seems to be alert but asleep at the same time. And there might arise certain kinds of patterns and pictures and colors and shapes and things like that. Don't do anything. Let them go. Let them be. Don't pay attention to them. Look through them. Don't look at them. Be present in the mind itself. Don't do anything. Again, Ananda, a bhikkhu, not attending to the perception of the base of nothingness, not attending to the perception of the base of neither perception nor non-perception, attends to the singleness dependent on the signless concentration of mind. His mind enters into that signless concentration of mind and acquires confidence, steadiness, and resolution. He understands thus, whatever disturbances there might be dependent on the perception of the base of nothingness, those are not present here. Whatever disturbances there might be dependent on the base, on the perception of the base of neither perception nor non-perception, those are not present here. There is present only this amount of disturbance, namely that connected with the six bases that are dependent on this body and conditioned by life. He understands this field of perception is void of the perception of the base of nothingness. This field of perception is void of the perception of the base of neither perception nor non-perception. There is present only this non-voidness, namely that connected with the six bases that are dependent on this body and conditioned by life. Thus he regards it as void of what is not there. But as to what remains there, he understands that which is present. Thus, this is present. Thus, Ananda, this too is his genuine, undistorted, pure descent into voidness. There comes a point where the mind itself becomes coarse. There's a collectedness that you experience with the mind. But the edges of the mind have a certain kind of tense tension. And so, 
what you do there is you soften the edges of the mind. In your mind's vision, when you close your eyes, the periphery of that vision, you start to soften the edges over there. And now the mind dissolves into pure awareness. This awareness is void of the field of perception, or this field of perception, which is this awareness, is void of the perception of neither perception nor non-perception, is void of the quiet mind. It is looking at or looking at nothing. It's not nothingness. It is just looking, but not looking at anything in particular. It is aware, but not aware of anything. There is just awareness. Signless concentration of mind, that comes from the word Animitta Samadhi. Animitta, right? Sometimes when people have you know, very concentrated states of mind, they experience the lights. Those are called nimittas. But nimitta actually means object. So this is the objectless samadhi, the objectless meditation. This is the signless state of mind. And this signless state of mind doesn't take anything as an object. It just is pure awareness. When you get to this state, don't do anything either. Just be aware. There is sometimes something coming up in the periphery and then the mind wants to relax. In the wanting to relax, the sense of I am comes about. This state is similar to the experience of anatta. Seeing things as they are, undistorted, unaffected by taking things personally. As soon as something comes up, the mind is triggered to relax it. But in the relaxation of that, the mind brings up the idea of the I am. So don't do anything. In the very seeing, in the very observing, in the very knowing of there being a disturbance, that disturbance passes away. And the mind returns back to that signless awareness. Again, Ananda, a bhikkhu, not attending to the perception of the base of nothingness, not attending to the perception of the base of neither perception nor non-perception, attends to the singleness dependent on the signless concentration of mind. His mind enters into that signless concentration of mind and acquires confidence, steadiness, and resolution. He understands thus, this signless concentration of mind is conditioned and volitionally produced. But whatever is conditioned and volitionally produced is impermanent, subject to cessation. When he knows and sees thus, his mind is liberated from the taint of sensual desire from the taint of being, and from the taint of ignorance.
When it is liberated, there comes the knowledge it is liberated. He understands birth is destroyed. The holy life has been lived. What had to be done has been done. There is no more coming to any state of being. Here in the signless concentration of mind, certain kinds of thoughts in the periphery kind of percolate. As soon as your attention goes to that thought, it strengthens that thought. But if you just allow things to be and don't do anything, let the percolations just rise and fall away. Eventually, the last formation, which is the formation of conceit related to the me, mine, myself, that fades away and the mind enters into the cessation of perception, feeling and consciousness. And from there, the mind touches the unconditioned. And if circumstances are right, can experience liberation from the taints. Then he understands whatever disturbances there might be dependent on the taint of sensual desire. Those are not present here. Whatever disturbances there might be dependent on the taint of being. Those are not present here. Whatever disturbances there might be dependent on the taint of ignorance. Those are not present here. There is present only this amount of disturbance, namely that connected with the six bases that are dependent on this body and conditioned by life. He understands this field of perception is void of the taint of sensual desire. This field of perception is void of the taint of being. This field of perception is void of the taint of ignorance. There is present only this non-voidness, namely that connected with the six bases that are dependent on this body and conditioned by life. Thus he regards it as void of what is not there. But as to what remains there, he understands that which is present thus. This is present. Thus, Ananda, this is his genuine, undistorted, pure descent into voidness, supreme and unsurpassed. So now, after attaining Nibbana, the mind reviews what happened. After attaining full awakening, the mind reviews and sees that this field of perception, that is the mind, is empty of the taint of sensual desire. No longer any craving, sensual craving. Empty of the taint of being. No more craving for existence. Empty of ignorance. Complete understanding of the, full, of the four noble truths. And there is present only this, the six sense bases. Conditioned by life. So these six sense bases give rise to contact. Contact gives rise to feeling and perception. There is present all of this, but no longer the taints. When there are no longer the taints, there is no longer ignorance. When there is no longer any ignorance, there is no longer any formations rooted and fettered by craving, 
by delusion, by ignorance, by conceit. And so there is present only the activity of the six sense bases. This awareness of the activity of the six sense bases doesn't attach a me, myself, or I to it. It just sees it as it actually is. There is present only these six sense bases. Ananda, whatever recluses and Brahmins in the past entered upon and abided in pure, supreme, unsurpassed voidness, all entered upon and abided in this same pure, supreme, unsurpassed voidness. Whatever recluses and Brahmins in the future will enter upon and abide in pure, supreme, unsurpassed voidness, will all enter upon and abide in this same pure, supreme, unsurpassed voidness. Whatever recluses and Brahmins in the past and in the present enter upon and abide in pure, supreme, unsurpassed voidness, all enter upon and abide in this same pure, supreme, unsurpassed voidness. The pure, supreme, unsurpassed voidness is the mind that is liberated and empty of craving, empty of delusion, empty of conceit, empty of wrong views. And so that mind is present in itself, aware of itself as being empty of any kind of craving. This is understood as one level of emptiness, that is to say that this mind knows it is empty from the taints, empty from any craving links, empty from any kind of conceit. And this is that pure, supreme, unsurpassed voidness. Therefore, Ananda, you should train thus. We will enter upon and abide in pure, supreme, unsurpassed voidness. That is what the Blessed One said. The Venerable Ananda was satisfied and delighted in the Blessed One's words. So this was the first sutta. I'm actually going to read three suttas, short. The next sutta, let's see if I can find it. The next sutta is uh, Samyutta Nikaya 35.85. Empty is the world. Then the Venerable Ananda approached the Blessed One and said to him, Venerable Sir, it is said, Empty is the world. Empty is the world. In what way, Venerable Sir, is it said, Empty is the world? It is, Ananda, because it is empty of self and of what belongs to self, that it is said, empty is the world. And what is empty of self, and what belongs to self? The I, Ananda, is empty of self, and what belongs to self. 
Forms are empty of self and of what belongs to self. I consciousness is empty of self and what belongs to self. I contact is empty of self and what belongs to self. Whatever, whatever feeling arises with eye contact as condition, whether pleasant or painful or neither painful nor pleasant, that too is empty of self and of what belongs to self. And so with the sense bases, the other sense bases, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, the mind, these are empty of self and what belong to self. They're objects, sounds, smells, tastes, tangibles, and mind objects. These are empty of self and what belong to self. Ear consciousness, nose consciousness, tongue consciousness, body consciousness, mind consciousness is empty of self and what belongs to self. Ear contact, nose contact, tongue contact, body contact, mind contact is empty of self and what belongs to self. Whatever feeling arises with ear contact or nose contact or tongue contact or body contact or mind contact as condition, whatever feeling that arises dependent upon these, whether painful, pleasant or neutral, these are empty of self and of what belongs to a self. So what we are saying here is that when you investigate what is the world, the world is measured and known by the experience of your six sense bases. But the experience of the six sense bases are dependent upon contact. That contact is made up of the sense base, the sense base object, and the sense base consciousness. Investigating into this, you see that the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, the mind, did you bring it up? Did you create it? Is it you? Or can it be observed and seen as not me, not mine, not myself? The eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, the mind, these arise dependent upon causes and condition. conditions. And they change over time. That which is self is permanent, does not change. This is the idea of that self of, or whatever belongs to self. But this is always changing. The forms that you see are always changing. The sounds that you hear are always changing. The smells that you smell are always changing. The tastes that you taste are always changing. The touches that you experience are always changing. And the thoughts that you observe are always changing. That cannot be self. The awareness of them 
is always changing, dependent upon their arising and passing away. That can't be self. And then the experience dependent upon their contact, that is always changing. That can't be self. So when the Buddha says, empty is the world, he says, it is, it is Ananda, because it is empty of self, and what belongs to self, that it is said, empty is the world. This level of emptiness is the experience of anatta. Just the pure observation. That's it. In the seeing, there is only the seeing. In the hearing, there is only the hearing. In the cognizing, there is only the cognizing. How does one know this? Just by observing the process of seeing. Just observing there is seeing going on. Just being aware there is hearing going on. Just being aware there is tasting going on. No self in it. No I or me before it. No I, me or myself after it. Just seeing it, and that's it. No judgment about it, no noting it, no labeling it, just seeing it, just observing it. So this is a small sutta to kind of understand this level of emptiness, but we're going to go a little bit deeper. Now we're going to look at it from the perspective of the five aggregates. Because the five aggregates are our modes of experience. Everything we experience is through the body, through feeling or sensation, through perception, through intentions or formations, and through awareness. So this sutta is Samyutta Nikaya 22.95. And it's called a lump of foam. On one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling at Ayodhya on the bank of the river Ganges. There, the Blessed One addressed the bhikkhus thus. Bhikkhus, suppose that this river Ganges was carrying along a great lump of foam. A man with good sight would inspect it, ponder it, and carefully investigate it. And it would appear to him to be void, hollow, and insubstantial. That foam, right, on the water, that is hollow, void, and insubstantial. For what substance could there be in a lump of foam? That lump of foam is so fragile, that it can just split apart and disappear. So too, because whatever kind of form there is, whether past, present, future, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, a bhikkhu inspects it, ponders it, and carefully investigates it, and it would appear to him to be void, 
empty of self, hollow, insubstantial. For what substance could there be in form? And when you talk about form, we're talking about the body, but we're talking about all form. Whether it's my body, your body, this microphone, this book, this water bottle, these speakers, these walls, this building, everything that has form. Far or near, here in India or there in the U.S., here in Beer or there in Dharamshala, superior or inferior, it's small or big or medium, doesn't matter, gross or subtle, whether it's the form that we see here in the body or the form of atoms and molecules, past, present or future, whether it was your form as a child, as a teenager or as an adult, all of that is ever-changing subject to disintegration, just like a lump of foam. If that is the case, how can you take it to be self or what belongs to self? That self is not, that form is not me, not mine, not myself. Suppose, bhikkhus, that in the autumn, when it is raining and big raindrops are falling, a water bubble arises and bursts on the surface of the water. A man with good sight would inspect it, ponder it, and carefully investigate it. And it would appear to him to be void, empty, hollow, insubstantial. For what substance could there be in a water bubble? When it's raining, right, and it falls under raindrops and you see the little bubble, it bursts apart. And as the more water hits the water, more rain hits the water, there's all these bubbles being created, but they come and go. They get created and destroyed, created and destroyed, come and go, rise and pass away. So too, because whatever kind of feeling there is, whether past, future, or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, Inferior or superior, far or near, a bhikkhu inspects it, ponders it, and carefully investigates it. And it would appear to him to be void, empty of self, hollow, insubstantial. For what substance could there be in feeling? All sensation you're having, all experience you're having right now, it's arising and passing away at a very phenomenal rate. The commentaries talk about this, especially this particular passage. And they conclude, now this is their number, but it doesn't matter what the number is. They conclude that a feeling, whether it's feeling born from eye contact, ear contact, nose contact, body contact, tongue contact, mind contact, arises and passes away in every moment, in a finger snap, in every moment, at the rate of 10,000 crore arising and passing away. Sorry, let me correct myself. A hundred thousand crores. That is one trillion arising and passing away in a finger snap. When you see for yourself in infinite consciousness, the arising and passing away of consciousness, you are seeing this the contact, the feeling, the perception. 
you are seeing the arising and passing away at a very slow down rate. So this experience that you're having right now, the sound waves that you're experiencing right now, they seem very fluid. You're able to perceive what the experience is. But if you truly saw it, you would see the gaps in each sound wave, in each experience. You are seeing me and I am moving around in a seemingly fluid manner. But if you really slow things down, you would see iotas of feeling that the mind is grasping onto and then creating this idea of a fluid experience. But really what's happening is if you actually saw it, you would see it under strobe lights, like how I would move in a jittery manner. You know? And this can happen whether you are sitting in meditation in infinite consciousness or with your eyes open. I can speak from experience about this. One time when I was in San Diego and meditating, I was walking into the kitchen and I suddenly went into infinite consciousness. And the people in the kitchen started moving like mechanized robots. And there was the arising and passing away of light. And it was like each film reel was starting to slow down in my mind. It's pretty freaky. But when you see this, that feeling, what is it that you're trying to grasp at the experience? Experience of the eyes, the nose, the ears, the tongue, the body. Maybe the body you try to hold on to in one way or the other. But even that is insubstantial. Trying to hold on to what? Trying to hold on to thoughts. How do you hold on to thoughts? They are extremely fickle, arising and passing away. And as we know, anything that arises and passes away, especially at that rate, cannot be said to be a permanent self. Cannot be said to be constant and stable. So let go of the idea that whatever it is you're experiencing is mine, is me, myself. Let go of that idea. Just see it for what it is. Impermanent, empty, void, insubstantial. Suppose, bhikkhus, that in the last month of the hot season, at high noon, a shimmering mirage appears. A man with good sight would inspect it, ponder it, and carefully investigate it. And it would appear to him to be void, hollow, insubstantial. For what substance could there be in a mirage? So too, bhikkhus, Whatever kind of perception there is, whether past, future, or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, a bhikkhu inspects it, ponders it, and carefully investigates it. And it would appear to him to be void, empty of self, hollow, insubstantial. For what substance could there be in perception? A mirage, you know, when you see out into the distance and you see that mirage on a hot day. And then you look at it again and it's no longer there, it disappears. This is how our perceptions are. Remember, our perceptions are the concepts, memories, ideas, all of these different things that arise in our mind. The labeling of things.
We take those so seriously. When we perceive something, when we have a memory of something, we perceive it a certain way. But another person who has, who has been in that memory will experience it in a completely different way. So who is right? That perception of whatever that memory was, they see it in a certain way. You see it in a certain way. Because you have implemented a sense of self to that. And they have implemented a sense of self to their perception. Concepts. All our mind experiences are concepts. What is this table? What is this desk? It's a concept. You take out one leg of the table. Is it still a table? We create concepts in our mind. Our mind only sees in concepts. I say you are human, you say I am human. That's a concept. That's a label, that's a name. We all consensually together agree, you know, that this is the color red. But I perceive it as red, you perceive it as red. How do I know that you're perceiving it in the same way I am perceiving it? Yet we have all basically agreed to say that is red. Another concept. Internally in our mind we have concepts about who we think we are. And then people tell us who they think that we are. And then that's their concept of us. So how do you live? Do you live by the concept you have of yourself? Or the concept that others have of you? Better not to live under any concept. Seeing this, the mind has to let go of adding any self to any kind of concept. They are just concepts. Observe them as they are. This is a concept. In that observation, no self is there. No self is added to it. The experience of anatta is just through pure observation. Not thinking, not analysis, nothing. Relax into the awareness of the experience. That's it. Suppose, bhikkhus, that a man needing heartwood, seeking heartwood, wandering in search of heartwood, would take a sharp axe and enter a forest. There, he would see the trunk of a large plantain tree, straight, fresh, without a fruit bud core. He would cut it down at the root, cut off the crown, unroll the coil. As he unrolls the coil, he would not find even softwood, let alone hardwood. A man with good sight would inspect it, ponder it, and carefully investigate it. And it would appear to be void, hollow, insubstantial. For what substance could there be in the trunk of a plantain tree? So too, bhikkhus, whatever kind of volitional formations there are, whether past, future, or present, 
internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near. A bhikkhu inspects them, ponders them, and carefully investigates them. As he investigates them, he, they appear to him to be empty, void of self, hollow and insubstantial. For what substance could there be in volitional formations? Here we're talking about our choices, our intentions. Every choice that we've made in the past, every choice we make now, every choice we make in the future, all decisions are dependent upon various causes and conditions that are taken into account. When you see a person, you see them as a person. But when a fully awakened person, a being, if they wish to see a person, they see all of the cascading karma that leads to that person in that moment. Our choices are nothing but a cascading of karma, dependent upon causes and conditions. This is the subtlest aspect because we say this was my decision. I took the choice. I had that intention. But these intentions, these choices, they arose dependent upon the causes and conditions that led to that choice and made that choice. May, you know, including the choices that are presented, but also all the information in the mind present in that moment to make that choice. But all of that information is nothing but feeling and perception. And we already know feeling and perception are not me, not mine, not myself. So those intentions, those choices also are empty of self. This might be a difficult exercise, but when you see a person, don't see a person. See them to be a result of all of the trillions of choices that they've made cascading down into that moment. This is what the world is. This is what samsara is. A series of choices. Interpenetrating, cascading through the different lenses. All of this different, different karma coming together to create a choice. Let go of the need to make any choice. Making a choice is very disturbing to the mind. So for some, it can be very debilitating. They get, they get indecisive. And then they go into analysis and experience analysis paralysis. They don't know how to make that choice. Let go of any attachment to any choice. Use your intuition. Let the mind come to the choice and let the choice be made. The only deciding factor there should be, is the choice in alignment with the Dhamma or not? Not to do with, does it affect me or affect another person in this way or that? Is it in alignment with the Dhamma? Which means, in essence, is it non-harmful to another being and non-harmful to this body and mind? Suppose, bhikkhus, that a magician 
or a magician's apprentice would display a magical illusion at a crossroads. A man with good sight would inspect it, ponder it, and carefully investigate it, and it would appear to him to be void, hollow, insubstantial. For what substance could there be in a magical illusion? So too, because whatever kind of awareness there is, whether past, future, or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, a bhikkhu inspects it, ponders it, and carefully investigates it. And it would appear to him to be void, hollow, insubstantial. For what substance could there be in consciousness, in awareness? This awareness that we experience is tied to feeling and perception. When you become aware of something, you need an object to be aware of it. Even awareness of awareness, let's say, the awareness of the mind itself, it is tied to the mind. And the mind is made up of components. Take away its components, the mind disappears, so too the awareness dependent upon it. See your awareness not as you, but as a function of the mind, dependent upon the mind. So even the very observation of an experience is dependent upon that experience. And then the superimposition of the observer happens through the mind that says that this is me, this is mine, this is myself. But rarely there is just observing going on. Relax in the observation. Remember, going back to that statement, in the seeing there is only the seeing. In the observing there is only the observing. In the meditating there is only the meditating. Don't add anything to it. No I, me, myself in it, before it, or after it. Seeing thus because the instructed noble disciple experiences disenchantment towards form, disenchantment towards feeling, disenchantment towards perception, disenchantment towards choices, Disenchantment towards consciousness. Disenchantment. What is disenchantment? Another word for disenchantment used in the suttas is revulsion. Doesn't mean aversion towards it. What it means is you've had enough of it. If I give you your favorite meal and I say, here, have this. I had the best chef make it just the way you like it. And you eat that meal and you relish it and you're saying, wow, thank you so much, that was great. And I say, but wait, wait, there's a second portion here. Have some more. And out of being polite, you say, okay, I'll have another portion. Then I say, hold on, hold on, there's another portion. Take a third portion. How will you feel? Revulsion. I've had enough, enough, please. 
This is disenchantment. When you are in quiet mind, when you are experiencing thoughts, you've had enough of them. You don't care about them anymore. Let them come, let them go. I don't care. Now your mind isn't interested in getting caught up in them, getting engaged in them. In the same way, when you see it for it, what it actually is, the form, the feeling, the perception, the choices, the awareness, arising and passing away, eventually you have disenchantment. Okay, they're there. I don't care. It doesn't matter to me. It's fine. I've had enough. I've seen enough. Experiencing disenchantment, he becomes dispassionate. Dispassionate. Vairagya. Detachment. Disconnected with it. There is a bubble around you, unaffected by it. This all happens naturally. It will happen naturally as you get deeper into the practice. The perception of impermanence, remember, the perception of impermanence leads to the perception of dukkha. The perception of dukkha leads to the perception of anatta, seeing all this as empty of self. The perception of anatta leads to the perception of equanimity. Seeing things as they actually are, not grasping. And that leads to the perception of disenchantment, which leads to the perception of dispassion, detachment, completely unaffected. Don't know what's going on, don't care. Just being in mind, that's it. Just relaxing in mind. Through dispassion, the mind is liberated. There comes cessation. When it is liberated, there comes the knowledge it is liberated. He understands destroyed is birth. The holy life has been lived. What had to be done has been done. There is no more for this state of being. This is what the Blessed One said. Having said this, the fortunate one, the teacher, further said this in verse Form is like a lump of foam, feeling like a water bubble. Perception is like a mirage, choices like a plantain trunk, and consciousness like an illusion. So explain the kinsman of the sun. However one may ponder it and carefully investigate it, it appears but hollow and void when one views it carefully. What does this require? Careful inspection, not analysis, not investigation, not reflection in that sense. Just pure observation. Careful attention, yoniso manisikara. With reference to this body, the one of broad wisdom has taught that with the abandoning of three things, one sees this form discarded. What three things? The abandoning of these three, three things, the body is discarded. When vitality, heat and consciousness depart from this body, then it lies there cast away, food for others without volition. 
This body arises and passes away dependent upon heat, vitality, and consciousness. We're going to go deeper into this tomorrow. But heat here is the heat of cellular metabolism. Vitality is the jivat indriya. It is that which animates the body. The experience or the processing of the nervous system. And consciousness. But remember that consciousness continues to arise and pass away. Such is this continuum, this illusion, beguiler of fools. It is taught to be a murderer. Here, no substance can be found. Such is this continuum, this illusion, beguiler of fools. It is taught to be a murderer. Here, no substance can be found. It takes up an identity. I am a man. I am a woman. I am Indian. I am American. I, am, I work at so-and-so company. I am a Buddhist. I am an atheist. I'm a doctor. I'm a philosopher. You know, all of these identities, it just takes on, just pushes onto this form, this feeling, this perception, these choices. A bhikkhu with energy aroused, using right effort, using the six arts, should look upon the aggregates thus, whether by day or at night, comprehending with full awareness, ever mindful with observation. He should discard all the fetters and make a refuge for himself. Let him fare as with head ablaze, yearning for the imperishable state. You must have heard this before. Like a, like a man with his head on fire in search of water. Observe these things and come to that imperishable state. The unconditioned. To Nibbana. Questions? This is a very general. Uh, all the Nikayas contain Buddha's teaching, but there's a categorization, Majjhima Nikaya, Dik Nikaya. So why, could you just say as why these uh, different Nikayas, what do they really contain? Yeah. So I'll give you my understanding of the Nikayas. So there is the Digha Nikaya, which is the collection of long discourses. And so these discourses are very long, like they are extremely long. Some of them are the longest discourse or the longest uh, sutta in the Digha Nikaya is the Mahaparinibbana Sutta. I have done a sutta in this uh, Digha Nikaya, which was I think Digha Nikaya 32 Sangiti Sutta. And in my foolishness, I thought I'd be done in two hours. You remember this, you were there. 
And this was when I was doing online talks. And I thought it'll be done maybe two hours, maybe three hours. I was going on and on and on, and my voice became broken. And it took us about three or four weeks to actually finish that sutta. I mean, over the course of on a weekly basis, three or four weeks. So about eight hours to finish that sutta. So that's the collection of long discourses. The Majjhima Nikaya, or the Madhyama Nikaya, Majjhima is the Pali, is the medium-length discourses. And they're categorized according to certain kinds of categories, like the, the, long, uh, the, the discourses on one by one as they occurred. Like, so I'll give you an example. Let's see if I can find the table of contents here. So for example, there is a division on the discourse on the root of all things, a division on the lion's roar, a division on similes, a division of pairs, the division, the shorter, greater, the greater division of pairs and the shorter division of pairs. Then the division on householders, where the Buddha is talking to householders, on bhikkhus, where he's addressing bhikkhus, on wanderers, where he's addressing to wanderers, on kings, on brahmins, then the ones that are located at Devadaha, the ones that are fulfilled one by one, the division on emptiness, the division of expositions on different things, the division of the sixfold base, that is, there's a whole section on just the six sense bases. So these are the middle length discourses. They are of an average length, which is easy to discuss, you know, in a two hour talk, let's say. Then you have the Samyutta Nikaya, which is the connected discourses. Those discourses are connected by themes, by certain broad themes. For example, let me go back and go here. So for example, you have the Devata Samyutta, the discourses on all of the Devatas, the discourses on the young Devas, the discourses related to the Kosalins, the discourses related to Mara, to the Bhikkhunis, so different categories, to the Brahmas, to the Brahmins, to Vangisa, to the woods, to the yakas, to sakha, to on causation. So there's a whole disc, there's a whole section that is on the discourses on nidanas, on dependent origination. There's a whole connected discourse on breaking through the barriers, on the elements, on on finding it, on unable to find a beginning in terms of samsara related to kasapa, and so on. So it's connected by themes. This is why it's called connected discourses. They're connected by themes. Then there is the Anguttara Nikaya, which is connected by numbers. They're lists, ones, you know, discourse on the ones of this, twos, threes, fours, fives, all the way up, I think, to 11. So for example, in the, dis on, in the section that is by fives, on the five aggregates, or, you know, on seven, the seven enlightenment factors. On eight, the eight liberations. You know, the eight types of people, eight kinds of beings, the eight kinds of uh, enlightened beings, and so on and so forth. So they're categorized under different kinds of numbered lists. Then there's the Kudaka Nikaya. This is the collection of discourses that are minor discourses. But by no means is this book minor. It has not yet been fully translated because that collection 
would take up an entire shelf. Kudaka Nikaya. Kudaka. So this one, there are a few that have been translated. Like for example, the Sutta Nipata. The Sutta Nipata is about this big. And it's a small section of the Kudaka Nikaya. Then there's one called the Path of Discrimination, which is about this big as well. And it's a small section of the Kudaka Nikaya. So this is all of the stuff that they couldn't categorize. They just threw into it like a kitchen sink. You know, so it's just all of the different minor discourses. These are the five Nikayas. Uh, so I just had a bunch of questions. So uh, one of them is that uh, I believe that there's a very strong linkage between taking the precepts or rather having one's uh, Sheila, I hope I'm not using the wrong word, yeah, yeah. Uh, along with one's uh, mindfulness. Uh, it, um, it would be great if you could revisit that along with uh, some uh, references as well. Um, so the importance of keeping Sheila, you mean? Yeah. And how it affects mindfulness. Right. Yeah. So uh, actually we'll be going over this uh, on the last day because it's a short sutta. It's called the Upanisa Sutta, which is Samyutta Nikaya uh, 3595. No, sorry, that's the other one. This is Samyutta Nikaya 12.23. This is called the Upanisa Sutta. And there are other suttas like it, like Anguttara Nikaya 10.1, 10.2, 10.3, 10.4, and 10.5 which all are similar to this. And what it talks about is one who maintains their sila has a mind filled with non-regret. From that non-regret arises gladness, which is pamoja. From that pamoja arises joy. From that joy there is tranquility. From that tranquility there is collectedness. So now there is the ability to be in samadhi, and from there, there's equanimity, and so on and so forth. So the idea is to keep the precepts is not because of some moral obligation. It's to understand the importance of why you keep precepts. Number one, the reason you keep precepts is you would do unto others what you would have them do unto you. That's basically it, the golden rule. You don't want to be killed. You don't want someone to harm you. You don't want to be lied to. You don't want things stolen from you. You don't want to be cheated on. You don't want to have people mis have misconduct with you. You don't want people to get drunk and you know belligerent with you. In the same way, with respect to yourself and to other beings, you keep that precept, those precepts, at least the five basic precepts. And when that is there, the mind has no regrets. Regrets arise because it thinks, oh, I said that to that person one time. Oh, I shouldn't have done that. Oh, that was so cringy when I got drunk that day and I said that thing to that person. So that's a mind without any regrets. This is the basis for why we keep precepts. Got it, thanks. Uh, another one was that, uh, would you be able to share, uh, you know, and uh, essentially ex expand on any uh, references to metta within the, the suttas? To metta? Yeah, to metta. The big one that I've seen is uh, uh, Sutta Nipata, which I was talking about earlier. This is in the, metta, the Karaniya Metta Sutta, which is Sutta Nipata 1.8. That's a big one. Uh, there are a couple of others in the Kutaka Nikaya, and then a bunch of others in the 
uh, Majjhima Nikaya. For example, in Majjhima Nikaya, I think it's 52. Let me make sure. 52, that is the Atakanagara Sutta, the man from Atakanagara, which talks about the 11 doorways to Nibbana, which include the four jhanas, the four Brahma-viharas, Metta, Karuna, Mudita, and Upeka, and the, four, uh, and the three formless realms. Then there is uh, Metta Sahagata Sutta, which I believe is in the Samyutta Nikaya. I can't tell you which one exactly, but Metta Sahagata Sutta, which talks about how the different Brahma-viharas are tied to each of the formless realms, from the four jhana until nothingness. And there's a bunch. I mean, and every time they talk about it, they talk about he pervades one quarter with loving kindness and another quarter, another quarter, above, below, and in all directions, so as to himself, as to all. So this is the exercise that he gives. What are the uh, benefits of uh, metta as that have, have been written in the sutta? And what is the reason why we chose uh, uh, metta as the object? Ob- the object of uh, meditation, because I remember you saying that you know the object could could be anything. Could be anything. Yeah. Right. So there are these eleven benefits of metta. I don't know them actually, but I know some of them, including that uh, one has. Um, do you know the eleven benefits or some of the eleven benefits? Some of them, yeah. So like, you know, your skin will be glowing and bright. You won't have nightmares as much. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, the, yeah, you'll be happier all, all the time. And uh, beings will be, beings will be like uh, at peace around you. Yeah, like animals will be attracted to you. You know, clearly uh, Sister Suka has a lot of metta. Uh, and then, as to why it's the object of meditation for this practice, um, Bhante used to say that he found that people could get into jhana seven times faster with loving kindness than with using the breath as an object. And I think one reason is that it just um, kind of naturally opens and relaxes the mind. And it's also naturally rewarding for your brain. You know, they've, they've scanned people's brains on compassion and loving kindness and it's lighting up the same circuits, the same kind of dopaminergic circuits. Um, So whatever chemical release is going on, that feels good and that gravitates the mind towards it and then also helps him uh, activate the enlightenment factors. And you can't forget this finger snap suttas. Yeah. And so, yeah, there's also that finger snap sutta I mentioned where, you know, your mind is in jhana the moment it's in that micro moment that it's sending loving kindness all the enlightenment factors are there, there's no hindrances, so you're in jhana. Uh, I just have another last question, which I think is not relevant to me at this stage, but uh, you know, it was there. That, uh, uh, I think you said that beyond one point, we have got to switch from radiating loving kindness to radiating equanimity. So is that something that, that, that you know, um, I mean, I need to consciously keep in mind? I, I know probably I don't need, need to know it at this stage, but... It'll happen automatically. No. So the metta changes to compassion. The compassion is a softer, calmer feeling than metta. Yeah. Then that uh, compassion changes to empathetic joy, and then that changes to peka. You will feel these downshifts of feeling. That's why I'm saying to people, you know, when they feel... Oh, 
we have an example of metta right there. <laughs> so, you know, that's why I'm saying that, you know, when, when metta seems to disappear, don't get disheartened by that. It is changing, and it might be changing to compassion. Allow it to do whatever it's doing. This is a progressive, automatic kind of experience that happens. One last one. That uh, right now, um, I am actually like very consciously giving out loving kindness. Uh, um, uh, uh, like in the sense, I keep giving out that message saying that may everyone be happy, may everyone be free of uh, suffering. The, uh, uh, so is is that what you mean? The, uh, the, uh, the that that like me consciously doing that is going to automatically change beyond a point. Staying with the feeling. Okay. Don't make it a mantra. Staying with just the awareness of the feeling. That's it. Could you please please elaborate on that? I get. So remember, in the beginning of the practice, when you were sending loving-kindness, you were sending it to yourself. Your mind was just resting in the awareness of the feeling. And then as it gradually goes, it goes to the spiritual friend. Then you are sending out the feeling in all directions. So it's not about, may I be happy, may I be well. That is just the beginning part which allows you to feel the feeling. Being conscious of the feeling, that is the practice. Doing something wrong, which would need a longer to be. Yeah, we, we can talk about it in the interview. Oh. Should, uh, should, no. Um, I had a sense of. Uh, bodily feeling as you were speaking about emptiness I'm wondering if there are signposts um, not only just observing mind but observing uh, body I was feeling a sense of gratitude and uh, radiating out from uh, the pores of my body so I'm just he doesn't you know there's no mention of uh, you know being aware of, you're just noticing the mind. But So are there signposts for what's going on in the body as well, or not? What you're experiencing is pramoja. Mm. It is gratitude in the Dharma. Sometimes when people hear the Dharma being spoken, they experience this overwhelming, uplifting kind of gratitude and joy that arises. So this is an experience of appreciation, Okay, but, and as we enter these realms of you know, emptiness or void, or, are there any signposts, or are we just looking at the mind? There are no signposts. Okay. But kind of in a sense, the jhanas, right? The jhanas are levels of cessation and kind of levels of voidness. Yeah, in the first case, in the first type of emptiness, but the emptiness of self, oh, there's no signposts. It's just, yeah, yeah. you'll know it. and consciousness yeah. so heat you said is metabolism wouldn't it be better to interpret vitality as circulation 
because uh, in another sutta where i think i don't remember it's the one after that vishaka sutta where one a person says that heat is dependent on vitality and vitality is dependent yeah on that's what we're going to be talking about tomorrow so, actually yeah so it makes sense if if circulation is dependent on metabolism and metabolism is dependent on mm, circulation yeah that would make sense, but the way I look at it also is because the, the vitality, which is the life faculty, he calls us jivit indriya. And I, I wonder if circulation would be a proper way of looking at that. Yeah, I mean, in purely medical terms, uh, vital uh, vitality is about circulation, hemodynamics, your blood mm. pressure, and the mm. flow. But the way I look at it is that the nervous system is the one that uh, regulates these things, right? Yeah, it regulates circulation. Yeah. But what maintains the metabolism is the circulation. Okay. Without circulation, the cells don't get uh, right. what they need to. Right. Just a yeah, that's an interesting idea. I should contemplate that. But the reason I chose nervous system was because, yeah, it does regulate, as you said, circulation and other aspects. Maybe it's just uh, another step beyond circulation. But something to think about, definitely. Uh, the definition that we have been using for mindfulness, if I remember correctly, is remembering to observe mind's attention moving from one thing to another. So where in that is also being mindful of, in this practice, the feeling of metta? Because when you're aware of the metta, and then your mind gets distracted. Remember to observe that your mind is moving from that to the distraction. Okay. So the mindfulness that we are doing, can you just elucidate further on what is the benefit of observing it as it moves? The mind. Metacognition. Then you know how your mind works. And then what comes from that? Dependent origination. Understanding how... From this, there arose the contact with the hindrance, the feeling, and so on. And then there's craving. And so is just the, the practice of being aware of or staying with the feeling, does that fall under mindfulness in this definition? Or is it a different, is it awareness? So the way to look at it, again, tomorrow we'll discuss this, but the instruments of meditation are right effort, using the six R's, mindfulness, that is remembering to observe, and collectedness, staying with your object. So they circulate around each other to create the process of bhavana, mental development, and samadhi. Okay, yeah. So it wouldn't be quite appropriate the way that I have been thinking about it, of mindfulness, i.e. I'm being mindful when I'm staying with the feeling. That's not quite appropriate. I'm, right. I'm it's an aspect. Right effort. Right. It's an aspect of it, being aware but then being collected around it is the samadhi. In the Bahya Sutta, what is the specific wording? Is it in the seeing, the seeing, or in the scene, the scene, or? Either one. It's some, okay. some translations say, in the scene, there is only the scene, or in the seeing, there is only the scene. Okay. And then a final... Um, when they talk about people attaining some level of liberation while listening to the Buddha or something of that sort. Is 
are they experiencing some small blackout Niroda moment at that time, just uh, like that, and then yeah. things come back on? Okay. Yeah. So attaining it is... Is Naroda, is cessation the only way that is possible or that we know of for... So I, I know of some people who've listened to Dhamma talks or when somebody's reading a sutta and then all of a sudden everything just clicks into place. Not necessarily there was cessation there, but everything clicked into place and then some of the fetters just dropped and they felt this immense relief and this immense joy and energy coming out. And then it all just made sense. You know, especially in stream entry and to some extent Sakadagami. What does the last word mean? Sakadagami, which means once returner. That's another level of awakening. There are four levels stream enter, Sodapana, once returner, Sakadagami, non returner, Anagami, and Arahat, fully awakened. Uh, would you please elaborate a little on uh, radiating? On? Uh, radiating. Yeah. Uh, especially with equanimity. It yeah. feels more internal and not really radiating to me. Yeah. So that's why I used that little uh, analogy before, which is, first of all, when you're radiating, there should be no pushing of the feeling out into the different directions. It's more like your attention is in one direction and the attention is the wind blowing the sail of compassion or whatever it might be. The analogy I use for Upeka is it's like you just put in an intention to drop the rate, to drop the equanimity. It's like, you know, when you drop a little pebble on the surface of a lake and it starts to ripple. So your intention of equanimity starts to create movement in the mind. And you just observe that movement starting to just go out. And it might not be as apparent as the previous uh, Brahma Viharas, the, 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 yeah, exactly. And that'll happen. And eventually, the mind doesn't want to do anything. And it just remains collected. And this is the quiet mind that we talk about. This is then staying with the mind. But, uh, isn't equanimity um, a path to lead to infinite space? Uh, into nothingness. It's tied to nothingness. Okay, it doesn't lead to space and infinity. It can. What I'm saying, it, it, the limits of nothingness, oh, sorry, the limits of equanimity is nothingness. But you can experience equanimity as an object from the first jhana all the way to nothingness. Uh, could you elaborate a little bit more on the softening of the edges when you're in quiet mind is that like uh you expanding the edges or yeah so you kind of notice like borders in the mind and softening is sort of like the the borders start to just dissipate and now there's like no edge it's just edgelessness the mind is just continually going like it's not radiating it's just that you can't find any more edges in your awareness. So you said to do absolutely nothing is, should we 
still be trying to apply the enlightenment factors? Does that count as something? <laughs> Doing nothing is easier said than done. Because people have a tendency to say, maybe I should, uh, you know, they're there in the quiet mind, be like, is there anything going on here right now? Maybe I should uh, have some tranquility. You know? Just don't do anything. Let the mind guide itself. Just one last thing on the, you were saying how the fully awakened person will see a person as the accumulation of all the choices they've made throughout their life. Is that like literally seeing their past actions or is it like seeing them as like the last note in a in a piece of music, like it all makes sense. Like those, those previous notes had to come for that last note to make sense. Or could, yeah, let me just clarify. Them? I said a fully, awa- I mean, a fully awakened person can can see them. It's not like they will always see them, but if they want to, they can, and they do see, or they can see a lot of the different choices, like cascading out into now. It looks like the Matrix. <laughs> it's it's just uh, it's a knowing. It's it's an intuition of being able to see into like different things that has led to this being here in that moment. Uh, slightly related to that, uh, you spoke about how we shouldn't think of we shouldn't we should get rid of concept altogether, right? So as an exercise, you said, why don't you, when you look at a person, instead of thinking of them as a concept, think of them as all the trillions of choices they've made. I don't know how to practically do that. Yeah, I know. That's that's also a concept, actually. (laughs) 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 Yeah, please, please. So uh, you guys might have heard this one, but there was a, a meeting of a great Zen master and a great Tibetan master in L.A., and it was really hyped up meeting. So there was a lot of the students sitting all around. And uh, the Tibetan master walked in and the Zen master was uh, sitting there and he dramatically held up an orange. And they do these koans in Zen. So he said, what is this? What is this? And he was trying to display his understanding of emptiness. And uh, the Tibetan turned to, the, to his translator and he said, what, they don't have oranges in Japan? <laughs> so even though everything's empty, we still need concepts and kind of relative ways of relating to the, the world. Sorry, what about the other story? Of the hand. Oh. That's a good one too. So a, uh, a Theravada monk walks up to a Mahayana monk and he's trying to understand emptiness and he says, so my hand, this is empty? And the Mahayana monk says, yeah, this is just empty. It's just a, a concept. And the Theravada monk takes his 
hand into a fist and bops the Mahayana monk on the nose. And then he walks away (laughs) empty-handed. So anyways... So does that answer your question? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if there are any, uh, I feel like I will make a lot of assumptions if I would start like, breaking down into trillions of decisions yeah, in yeah. their life, right? Yeah. And that will be more of a hindrance than... So I was wondering if there's anything that I can do... Actually, what you can do is subjectively in your own mind, notice what your concept of them is and let go of those concepts. Like when you see your mother or your father or your relative, you have a certain uh, preconceived idea that this is how my father is. This is how my mother is. But your mother and your father, they're their own people. They're your mother and father in so, as, in, so as, in, in so as they gave birth to you and so on. But if you let go of the notion of what you think your father is, or what you think your mother is, or what you think your relative is, whoever it might be, your friend, your sibling, office worker, you know, your manager, whoever it might be. Notice what are the, what are the uh, superimpositions of identity the mind puts upon a person and let go of that. When you let go of that, then you are as close to seeing that person as they actually. Because there's no prejudgment about what things are or how they are. Thank you. That helps. Uh, this was actually uh, my today's uh, experience I want to share. Uh, I was meditating and uh, I could not because some thoughts actually came in my mind. And in spite of repeated uh, six hearings, I could not uh, get away with those thoughts. Ki, uh, in the starting of the meditation only, what we are saying, ki first you give metta to yourself. You love yourself. So we are giving metta to ourselves, to me. Mm-hmm. I am giving metta to me. So the me comes. Mm. Then uh, Buddha says, ki you love yourself, then you will be able to love others. Again, mm. me comes. Mm. I want to come to Twim retreat, again an I comes. And to achieve anything in life, when I comes, then how can we get rid of this my, me and myself? You're not getting rid of the my, me or myself. You're getting rid of the concept of me, my and myself, which causes the trouble. But every time this comes, it's mine, it's me, it's I have done this, then how can like, how can the, we get rid of that concept only? Because by observing it, by observing the concept of I comes up. Observing it, catching yourself, catching the mind every time it says, oh, I am doing this. And then notice what happens when the mind says, I am doing this. What are the thoughts? What are the ideas? What are the emotions tied to that sense of I? And start to relax that.
Uh, I would like to share a bit of my <coughs> experience also uh, on the way my practice is going. So yesterday uh, I had a very good experience and uh, I found myself in a state of you know, pure consciousness and really you know, great joy and enjoyed it and did not even want to come out of this, something I experienced for the first time. And in the morning, I reported it to um, Swamiji. And he, he said, how long? Uh, and I said, one and a half hours. He said, now do it for two hours. <laughs> <clears throat> and in all my subsequent efforts, forget two hours, I wasn't even uh, able to do it for 15 minutes. <laughs> so it's like going to the top and just falling down. <laughs> and I was very... Uh, not worried, but a little frustrated that, and therefore in the afternoon, uh, around 4, 30, 4 o'clock or so, I went to the little monastery that we have in front, sat in front of the statue of Buddha, made Buddha as, you know, the object of my mental altar, and used prayers, forgiveness, uh, gratefulness, and all those, you know, uh, as if now I'm praying to a God, forget the rest of the meditation techniques. And this I did maybe for about half an hour. And then gradually that you know, I got into a state where the meditation was happening the way you expect it to happen. And then everything became easy. So maybe my question is that, I mean, is it okay to use such techniques basically to get into... I mean, that is how I overcome the, the, the steep drop that I had. I thought I'll just share this experience. Thank you. I would say do whatever you can to bring up the feeling. Some, somebody had asked me once, can I do chanting? Because it makes me feel good. Go ahead, do chanting. Then let go of the chanting and come back to the feeling. That's it. The three things that I used or I explained are things that people have used. Using words, using phrasing, using gratitude, using a wholesome image. Use whatever works to bring you to that feeling of loving kindness and appreciation. Then stay with the feeling. I have a question related to quiet mind. In the sutta it was saying that uh, quiet mind are signless, signless uh, animitta samadhi. In that it says that he, he only knows uh, six sense bases. That's the only disturbance is there. Is it mean that he just uh, knows the heartbeat is going on? So first of all, understand this. Quiet mind is one thing and signless state is another. Yeah. These two are separate. What he's saying is he's only aware of the body or aware of the mind. Nama Rupa, that's it. Because the six sense bases are part of Nama Rupa. He's just aware that there is present only the body. It could be the heartbeat. You know, some people do experience hearing the heartbeat. Some people experience their breath. 
and all of these other things which are just bodily functions. So yes, that can be. So when we experience uh, heartbeat or bodily basic functionality which is going on, we can't do anything, right? We can just... You can either pay attention to it yeah. or you can just let it go and come back to mind. In my case, uh, even though I don't want to pay attention, every heartbeat is saying that it's like that's where you need the, that attention. <laughs> that's where you need a disenchantment. You have to become sick of hearing your heartbeat. I think uh, I just want to add something to his experience. In my case also, like if I put any target, like I want to sit for this many hours, I can't make it. Like So I realize that I don't want to put any limits. That helps me. Yeah, that's fine. I mean, think of what we're saying as suggestions, not hard and fast rules. We're saying, try to sit longer. That's it. We're giving you a little bit of, okay, you did an hour and a half. Can you try for two hours? If you don't hit two hours, it's not like you're gonna we're gonna punish you or something. <laughs> yeah, if you're if you're trying to get into a certain state, it's almost guaranteed not to happen. So just at the beginning of every sitting, you can think, "This is a new TV show. I'm, you know, yeah. it's gonna be different." So, yeah, but in my case, it's not that the two hours somehow that became a deadline and, you know, uh, scared me. Just naturally, as I said, even in the very preliminary uh, stage, I was, uh, was not able to sit for more than 10 minutes. Yeah. Not able to do even the... Uh, and so, yeah, I agree uh, that it, it, it's, a, it's a suggestion and, of course, once it happens, the longer the better. That yeah. point is taken. Thing. Yeah. But the, the wonderful thing about what you did was you taught yourself out of, this, out of the predicament. You both. <laughs> no, this, that's why we keep saying with, this retreat, with these retreats, you guys are teaching yourself what seems to work best for you. We're just guiding you. Have you tried this? Have you tried that? And then you start to teach yourself what works for you. No, then I'll share uh, one more thing that I do, or at least I did yesterday, and it worked well, uh, to overcome hurdles, or the, what is the word? Obstacles. Yeah, hindrances. hindrances. Yeah. So, because after, let's say, half an hour, the back will, for no reason, will start slightly aching, and, you know, or the leg or something, and, and also after about 45 minutes, the whole body will somehow appear very stiff and you know that kind of resistance and now how do you overcome if you really want to do it longer and if they and six hours exercise did help but did not really remove so uh, I have there is something I have learned from what uh, Matananji mentioned yesterday from Yog Nidra long time back so I talked to myself and while doing the walk uh, in the evening, long, long walk, I really talk to my body and my mind that, listen, you guys have to do nothing. You have no role to play in meditation. 
in fact you are in a very happy situation that you have to just sit quiet normally you have to work <laughs> so you should be and finally i gradually change the sentences that from should be rather than instructing i say that you are you are the willing partners and you are you are the happy partners in the search for truth you have to do nothing you have to just sit <laughs> this is your and i mean that's how i talk to myself and today at least i i had very little so called uh, yeah body resistance so what that shows is it's the attitude which you bring the your mind to this is why i keep saying to you guys smile laugh be like little children you're on vacation this is not some work there's not going to be like a at the end of the ninth day an exam which you have to give and tell us what happened and by no means are we going to give you certificates <laughs> so have fun with it i have two questions yeah. uh, first one is with the i me myself concept um are there any examples where we can use it or there are no examples at all for example today i was trying to implement it and uh, i had two questions there about past decision that i made can i be there in the past decision can the i be there mm -hmm. yeah because in the form of regret you say oh i shouldn't have i shouldn't have done that okay and uh, i trust you so how that i comes in in that place like if i want to see it to someone that i trust them just say it i trust you okay there the i concept comes in right yeah okay yeah i'm trying to see this is what you have to understand even the deva one of the devas asked the buddha how does a fully awakened person speak it's not like they say this mind and body trusts you <laughs> you know they use words like i me myself but it's the underlying personalization of that that you have to see that you have to observe and uh, second question is slightly different i want to know if physical objects do have consciousness do physical objects have consciousness mm -hmm. i read it somewhere that they do but i keep throwing my phone here and there <laughs> <laughs> please stop doing that I would say we should just start to first understand fully our own awareness and then we'll know if there's consciousness everywhere else. If I were to tell you yes there is or no there isn't it really wouldn't make a difference to you. First understand your own consciousness how it arises and passes away and according to that then you'll understand for yourself do other objects possess consciousness. appears to be super dissection of mind yeah. and the whole uh, teaching appears to be revolving around mind alone my question is who has uh, created this mind and everything uh, and lower animals do they have similar mind 
I mean, how this mind has evolved? Is there any anything like this in the Buddhist literature? The Buddha talks about trying to look back and see the beginning of the whole chain of causes and conditions, and he couldn't find a, a beginning to samsara, despite looking back, you know, eons and eons and arising and passing away of universes and such. So he actually said, if you were to think about that question too much, it's one of those questions that would just drive you insane. Um, but as to as to kind of the scientific explanation, you can think about it as the program program A and program B that I talked about the other day uh, through evolutionary psychology. So from that perspective, the nervous system is designed to survive and reproduce, and every animal has those uh, same impulses and is, you know, directed around by its own form of Vedana, its own feeling tone. And so even bacteria have this tendency to move towards and away from things, towards things that will lead towards, you know, a higher chance of survival and away from things that might be harmful. So you, th you think about it's programmed that deeply into all of us, this positive and negative, uh, you know, pleasant and unpleasant and neutral Vedana or feeling tone. And then the human nervous system started evolving around 600 million years ago. Um, you know, we were a jellyfish-like creature and had all the perceptions of a jellyfish, you know, whatever, whatever it's doing, probably just kind of like a blobby type feeling or whatever. And then eventually over millions of years that became us. So that's the evolutionary perspective on things. And from that perspective also, our prefrontal cortex is relatively recent, the part of the brain that allows us to use logical reasoning and planning and think into the future is only roughly 40 million years old. Um, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, 40 million years old, which in, in the evolutionary time span is relatively recent. And then, you know, we started, that part of the brain started to expand and slowly we became homo sapiens, the, 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 you know, the one who knows that it knows the, um, the, uh, that's what homo sapiens sapiens means. So then we developed this ability to have self-knowledge and self-awareness and mindfulness. So, so the other thing I would add to that about the, the mind the, the whole point of the Dhamma when the Buddha talked about the Dhamma and the Four Noble Truths is he always sums it up into two things he says I only teach two things Suffering and the cessation of suffering. So the Buddha never really was bothered by or took initiative into trying to figure out the objective reality and what's going on in terms of how this was created and all of these other things. 
he had an idea that, or he had the experience of suffering. And he says, there must be a way out of this suffering. And he tried all kinds of things. And in the Dhammapada, there's an interesting statement he says. And I'll paraphrase. I don't know the exact uh, this thing, but it's a beautiful little uh, verse. He says, for eons I have been traveling. Right? And finally, I have found the cause of that. I see you, architect. I see you, house builder. You can no longer build onto this. In other words, the house builder is the mind itself. Our experiences that we have is dependent upon this thing called mind. I point here, but really, mind is from the head all the way down to the toe and beyond. We can call it anything else, but whatever we call it is whatever it is. What we are saying is this knowledge of that allows that thing to be liberated from its own self-caused suffering. That's it. What we are trying to figure out is how does suffering arise? Now we have discovered the cause of that suffering, the architect, the one who builds that suffering. And once we've spotted it, once we recognize it, we can let it go. So yeah, I mean, to say, you know, or to find out how did this mind come about or who created this mind, in that sense it's, I say this cautiously, but in that sense it's self-created. Not by some permanent self, but we know it. There's that self-knowledge as Venerable Metananda was talking about, homo sapiens sapien. As for animals, animals also experience uh, different emotions. They experience empathy. They experience... And I say this because of watching animals. And so that's my own personal take on it. You know, when I see a dog, for example, and a cat and all these other animals, and uh, they have a certain way of responding to certain kinds of people. Like as if they can read their energy. Now as to whether it's all animals, we can't really say. But certain animals we can see that they have some level of empathy, some level of concern, and things like that. Another perspective on that is that they're programmed to feel that way. And maybe they don't have intention to feel that way. But then by that extension, even we're programmed to feel that way. So it's all a matter of perspective. How do you see it? Just answered the uh, question I was going to ask, but um, the first sutta that you read, um, the, the question kept on coming up, which was, uh, this is not what belongs to self. It almost alludes that there's something that belongs to self. <laughs> right. So that comes from that, remember, the ancient Indian understanding that there is some kind of a self that is permanent and that is unchanging, and that is a source of happiness. But knowing that everything that we experience is impermanent, it cannot belong to that self. But the Buddha never concluded whether there is a self or there is not a self. All he's pointing out in terms of anatta, anatman, what is not self. 
the self, the idea of the self or Brahman, that's all objective reality. He didn't get into that. He just got into, how do I let go of suffering? How do I stop suffering? So by understanding what is not self, then you stop taking these things personally. That's the point. When you start taking them personally, that's where the trouble is. A lot of other sages, you know, were asking slightly different questions than the Buddha. They were asking, what is reality? Or why, why am I here? And the Buddha asked the question, how do I end suffering, basically? So it was a how. It wasn't like an ontological why or what. It was a, a pragmatic, like this leads to that. What is the cause? This is the solution. So that's a different question and that gets a different result. And it's, yeah, it's, it's pragmatic. I keep using that word, but it's all about like do this and you get that result. It's not about like f finding out what is the ontological reality that I can make into a concept and, you know, sound, sound smart about or whatever. <laughs> But sometimes, isn't that the danger of making dependent origination and on process ontology, yes. which we try to deconstruct and just, you know, overthink uh, what's exactly going on and instead of experiencing it and using it to let go of suffering? Yeah. So that's why, you know, that's where the idea of uh, where the Buddha was giving that talk to uh, Diganaka, who was either Sariputta's nephew or his cousin. And Sariputta realized that the Buddha didn't have any attachment even to dependent origination. He only saw it as a means of understanding how suffering arises. So when we, like when we explore dependent origination, we do it so people have an introduction into what is clinging, what is craving. But making it, as you said, something ontological and making it something that's a view in itself defeats the purpose of why we're doing it, which is to understand to understand how suffering arises and then recognizing that suffering so we can let it go, so we can deal with it. So the idea is not to make the Dhamma itself the view. And when I say Dhamma, I'm really referring to dependent origination because Sariputta had said, the Buddha said, the Dhamma is dependent origination and dependent origination is Dhamma. So in that context, don't make that a view either. See it like the raft. To go from suffering to no longer suffering. Uh, two quick questions about cessation. Um, when so if someone gets to cessation and then they, after the cessation, you get a path, and then after that, you're supposed to get a fruition. Is the fruition experience as intense as the initial cessation? And then the other question is, um, if someone gets a cessation, is it like the amount of time after the cessation that they wait to meditate? Does that like diminish their ability to get the fruition or something? <laughs> The understanding in the suttas is if you get a path, you are bound to get the fruition. 
That can happen at death or before that. Doesn't mean you know you don't have to work towards it, but you're bound for it. And uh, not every cessation is going to equal a path or fruition. Cessations can allow you to be more aware of what's going on afterwards and start to drop fetters one by one or start to like grind away at the fetters. And uh, the first time you experience it, it is something. Subsequent times, not really. It's more a theory question. Like, why uh, cessation duration changes from person to person? Sometimes well, we haven't actually seen that. Like, we haven't actually tested it. There's no way for us to really test it, is there? Like, well, what's the average person's cessation like? Yeah, I guess we wouldn't really know. Yeah. Objectively, they wouldn't have a sense unless you're talking about for someone who makes a determination to go into Naroda Samapati, but as far as someone just having a spontaneous cessation, they wouldn't really know how long it was. Yeah. You'd have to get, uh, like, you, we should probably make this into a research paper. Get a bunch of people and then have them go through cessation at a 10-day retreat and then, you know, have them wired up to an EEG and an MRI and know what... Well, that was the time cessation, and then find the average duration. You can't, you really can't, until I, we try this, you know. Maybe we should speak to Matthew about it. Yeah, do they know about the research? I don't know, do you guys know about the research? Uh, you, you're aware. Well, there's two researchers. One is the University of Amsterdam, and the other one is um, General... And, yeah, Mass General yeah. And, and Harvard Medical School. Studying cessation, studying Delson's a guinea pig, actually. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, he was a subject too for the Jonas. The Jonas yeah, yeah. study. I mean, some of it's actually classified, but it's exciting because it's the first real study on awakening, first real study on Jhana. There have been a couple of pilot studies. And um, and then, you know, there's also a cessation study in, at the University of Amsterdam, and they're sharing data. And then, um, uh, so there'll be a cessation component to the Harvard study as well. And they're not really sure what they're going to find, but it'll be really interesting to see how this subjective experience, that, that can be pretty dramatic, what kind of objective measurements are going on there, what, what's going on in the brain, even really deep structures of the brain, like the brainstem, that might be uh, modulated by the experience. And yeah, I think that's pretty much it. And then there's a sleep study part of that as well with the University of Amsterdam. How does cessation affect a person's sleep? You know, things like that. I don't know when the paper is supposed to be out, probably December or January. We have somebody who's compiling the data for us. Yeah. So, uh, if I may talk about yeah, this please. in a more uh, scientific manner. Yeah. Um, so, when first uh, I was shown the data, 
right? Uh, 2019, end of December, people are showing this paper to me, say, hey, look, you know, an advanced meditator in Netherlands can enter uh, cessation. Uh, so the first thing that came to my mind was, uh, there's a flat uh, theta component, but it's non-zero. Uh, so I was like, okay, fine, like what's the significance of that? Mm -hmm. I don't really trust this. But, you know, everybody was saying, that's a flat line, flat line, uh, you know. Obviously, Sister Kema is the one who's most enthusiastic about this. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I, I asked Pandita uh, Magwesi, you know, can I have this data? Yeah. So at that time, I was working at the National University of Singapore as a senior research fellow, and, you know, I showed this data to people who actually work with EEG. Uh, so the first impression that they had was, oh, you know, maybe, the electrodes, you know, they came off during those moments. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I actually showed it to uh, uh, kind of a collaborator of mine, uh, and then I asked him, you know, like, what's happening here? How do you interpret this data? Because before I wanted to do the analysis, I wanted somebody in that field, because I don't work in that field mm. per se. I work with vision and machine learning and so on. So that person, the first impression was, he's a Greek guy, and he goes, ah, very noisy data. Mm. I'm like, okay, fine, yeah, I mean, can, what can you say more about this? Uh, so he goes on to give me a bunch of techniques that I can do to uh, denoise that data. Uh, so, so the original question still remains, which is, why that flat non-zero theta? So at that time, uh, Delson was using a, a Muse device, which is this five-point EEG. Uh, still, you know, it's pretty it's, rudimentary, yeah, I would say. Yeah, it's very rudimentary, but yeah. people say it's uh, research-friendly, uh, but I don't think it is. So we looked into other devices which we can purchase and you know uh, pass it on to you. Uh, but I still wanted to answer this question: Why this flat theta? So what I asked. Uh, Bante the Mabuesi and you separately. Sorry, Delson. That's the way scientific. Yeah, of work. course. You know, I didn't want. You know, you know, there needs to be control. Yeah. So I asked Bante the Mabuesi to switch on the Muse device, place it on the table. I also asked you to do the same thing, and then pass that data to me. So you know, Eureka. You know, I'm right. Yeah, there's a flat non-zero theta when we did that, which means the muse is not sufficiently sensitive to pick up neural, if mm. at all it happened. You know, I'm just speaking scientifically. So the, so the, the, the solution was, you know, we need to take this advanced meditator to a place where we can actually do with uh, more uh, research-oriented setup. But there's still, this data is still useful because we can, we, we can still do some learning on, uh, you know, classifying jhanas into different mm -hmm. uh, categories and making use of uh, a machine learning model to separate these jhanas. Is that possible in the first place? So with a very limited work, we, I had an intern who worked with me through the first wave of COVID. Uh, she was new to this, I was new to this. So... Uh, we did our best in four months' time, and you know when you get your phones, uh, you can Google that. You, you can type Suttavada brainwave research, 
then you would find the first uh, link to that. It has all the description of what I said. Sorry? <laughs> sure, yes. Uh, so I'll send the link, you know, that's better. Uh, and then COVID happened, you know. Uh, Delson is not able to travel, you know. Uh, we can't really test this. So then, twenty twenty one May is that? No, no. I think it was yeah twenty twenty one May. Yeah, twenty twenty one May, and then uh, Kuhn, uh he he contacts me and he says, you know, hey, you know, there's uh, there's going to be some data. Do you want to work on this? I'm like, fine, yeah, yeah let's do that. So the data was available to me only March this year. Mm. So in December, I had a meeting with uh, Ruben, who is now... Sorry, just to add, so the, the actual research happened in, um, I think it was November of 2021. Okay. Yeah, just okay. so everyone knows what happened. So, so there was, the data came from that research that happened in November 2021. Right. At the uh, Amsterdam, Amsterdam so, University. So I had a meeting with uh, Kuhn, no, not, not, not Kuhn, but uh, Ruben, mm. uh, who works primarily in this area, uh, cognitive neuroscience, working on insight meditation, seeing how uh, some people can actually fool themselves into thinking they got an insight, and you know, it's, it's along those lines. And then Helene Slachter, she, she is in the University mm -hmm. of Amsterdam, and she, I don't know what exactly works on, but she has a lot of experience with EEG. So Ruben was a postdoc with uh, Helene, and there are mm -hmm. nice pictures of Ruben and Delson, you know, doing this experiment. I got the uh, octopus yeah. on my head, yeah. Again, I'll send the link to the group yeah. later. Uh, so December, uh, we have a meeting and then, uh, you know, so the question now is, as a meditator myself, uh, I don't want to be biased by any analysis of Niroda. So I tell them openly, look, you know, I'm as skeptical as you are hmm. and they were happy to know that <laughs> again sorry Delson that's the way it is oh it's good that's yeah. good science uh, so then uh, what Ruben did was he moved to Australia and he had to like uh, spend a couple of months de-identifying the data hmm. all right so he, so there were two sets so he said there's no me mine or myself in the data <laughs> <laughs> something like that yes uh, <laughs> So, so the way it works is, uh, there were on two days. Uh, you were in first Helene's lab, yeah, in which the EEG, yeah, in which you did uh, in the morning and in the afternoon, yeah, right. So in the morning, uh, and there were three components actually: yeah, focused attention, focus attention, jhana, uh, and then uh, Niroda. yeah, right. No, no, I think focused attention and just open. Right? Like I had to okay. watch a documentary right, or something right, and not right. do anything right. and then focus attention. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So, so it's jhana and then looking at something like a documentary yeah. and then it all. And then you do that in a different order in the, yeah. in the yeah. afternoon. So there are six recordings hmm. of this. And so there are two files under each category. I only know that these two files belong to a particular category. I don't know whether recording A belongs to Naroda or, you know, whatever. So this data came to me in March, 
right? I had two students working on this. So, you know, I had to like take a very uh, pragmatic yet, like, uh, you know, you know, when it comes to academics like me, you know, I don't want my paper, I, I don't want my name on a paper in which people can say, hey, you know, he did something wrong. Mm. So I took utmost care to do the pre-processing in a way that is accepted by the EG Lab community. And then uh, go on to use uh, what we call as deep learning. It's basically uh, a deep neural network that you, you feed time windows of this data and then it, it, it can learn from that pattern. Is that like AI, basically? Yeah, hmm. yeah. so that's what I specialize in. Yeah, so, you know, don't ask me the results now. There's still a lot of uh, meta-analysis to be done. Hmm. Like, for example, you know, I don't know the, the classes uh, to which, you know, this data belongs to. So one thing I actually did was, well, uh, there are 15 combinations of those files into two categories. If the deep learning network is able to actually separate them in all those 15 combinations, it just means that the network is powerful enough to separate the data. Mm. Doesn't mean that it has learned anything useful to, to actually say uh, class A and class B and class C are actually different. We did this uh, experiment before actually Ruben told me that a and F belong to one category. B and D recordings belong to one category, and you know, so on. So uh, my student tells me that whichever is the right combination out of those 15, we are having uh, uh, the, the maximum accuracy, which means it's not the separability of the classes, it's rather the, the patterns embedded into each one of the categories, which means uh, the model is able to actually learn something useful and it can generalize to those patterns when we apply this to downstream tasks. So that's the latest result and mm -hmm. you know, I haven't shared this even with Delson uh, because you know this, that's the way it is. Mm -hmm. But like I said, you know, there's, there's still a lot of meta-analysis to be done and the other thing that I wanted to personally see was, uh, you know, when somebody says, you know, remember I, I asked you a question uh, the second day or third day, like if somebody just falls into sleep during meditation mm. and they fool themselves into, you know, hey, I got into cessation. Mm. And in the scientific community, if somebody says, uh, I got into cessation, that's as good as sleep, mm. right? Because you don't have any uh, consciousness during mm. sleep. Or you may dream of, for a while, but you know, that's the understanding. So to me, the home run would be to actually use the data that uh, in the sleep lab that you did, two yeah. hours worth of sleep. That was a lot of hard work, guys. Yeah. Sleeping for two hours like that, my goodness. So that would be the home run to me, because yeah. this is still like the separability problem. Yeah. Right? I, yeah. I'm able to separate between uh, Neroda. And sleep. Uh, I mean, the, the previous experiment is 
Niroda, focus attention, and just looking at something. Mm. That's just a separability problem. It doesn't say anything special about Niroda. If we can say that it's different to sleep, mm. and we have uh, ethical concerns around putting someone into Niroda for uh, an extended period of time, because what if the, you know, the body goes to a say maybe 20 beats heart rate, Yeah. then we would be officially required to actually yeah, wake you up. Right. right. So one of the things I'm considering is actually see if I can push and pull my connections in IIC Bangalore or IIT Madras and do a prolonged experiment where you know you are sitting in Niroda or whoever that might be and we do that for say five days mm. six days because in India it's going to be easier there will be ethics community I mean that, that committee will exist but you know we can you know put it in a spiritual sense you know, hey look <laughs> this is the land of the Buddha you know <laughs> So there's still a lot of uh, room there. And yeah. you, you see that in the, in the medical community in India, right? They take decisions based on intuition. That's not possible in the Western world or in, in Australia or Singapore. Mm. And personally, I've heard from doctors. They don't actually like to work in a place like Singapore. They know mm. the symptoms belong to malaria, for, exa for example. But they can't give the medicine because the tests are negative. Mm. My friend, personally, right, he had all the malaria symptoms. His dad just spoke to the doctor. Hey, look, typhoid is negative, malaria is negative. But it all looks like malaria symptoms. Just give it. And then he's fine. Hmm. Half an hour later. So there's this room way, this, this room in India where we can play with the ethics. <laughs> 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 so that's, that's kind of my... Uh, and then, and then we have planned a lot of uh, experiments around yeah. how someone would uh, respond in Neurola. For example, we would right. prick you right. while you are in Neurola yeah. or play loud sounds because that will generally wake you up. Right. If, if somebody is in sleep, it wakes them up. Yeah. So there are, there are a lot of these uh, interesting things that uh, we have planned. And Given that if you can tell us, say, uh, I plan to sit in Neurotha for five minutes, you would play a sound at 4.59 and see how your body responds. Mm -hmm. So these are some things that uh, we've planned. There's still a long way. Uh, right. I still haven't looked at the sleep data. Uh, yeah, the sleep data is going to be interesting because that, that's that going to show... Because yeah, that's going to show what's going on in terms of sleep in terms of the stages of sleep. Because uh, at that point I was doing the different stages of sleep and then also Nirodha. And then alternating between... Yeah. So going through REM, non-REM, Delta, all of that stuff. And then of course the stuff that's happening at uh, Mass General, if there's going to be some cross-pollination of data, we'll have some interesting stuff that's going on. Yeah. Yeah. Or oh, was it? Uh, 
Or was that the uh, predictive processing one? Yeah. Predictive process. I think that was before the before the experiment happened, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, uh, told told us about the, the the Tibetan monks experiencing more pain. Uh, the guy said, "You know, you actually have more feelings." <laughs> so that's the way it works. Sure. Sure. Do you think it's important to keep in mind with the TM research, though, that it's mostly conducted by TM scientists who are a little biased, but perhaps, yeah. I can hear the loud sound. Like one time, remember when Damasuka we had gunshots going on? I'm sorry, let me give context to what happened there. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm sure the editor will... will. Uh, no, actually, what happened was there was uh, some. So, Dhammasuka is like this campus, and there's private land on on the whole property, which is owned by a person, our neighbor. And uh, I think there was like uh, some kind of intruder or something that came in, and or or somebody was doing something, so they fired some warning shots at like three in the morning. And so I heard that while I was asleep. So then in the morning I asked them, like, did you guys hear the gunshots? Did you hear them? I didn't. No. <laughs> but I, that also brings up the question of, like, what is sleep? How do you define sleep? Because if subjectively you're aware, 
most people would define sleep as like a lack of awareness almost, but then now you almost have to define it by its neural patterns or something, which might look very different for someone who's aware throughout the entire night. So it gets kind of messy when you're trying to match the phenomenology with the subject neurology. And, yeah. 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 I mean, so the research will come out and show us what's actually going on when, when the sleep stages are. What happens with your physical processes Nothing like that. Um, this is all off the record, guys. I've tried up to six days. So for the six days, uh, what happens? Like, are you functioning? Well, I'm unconscious. No bodily processes going on. Everything is like, I guess, in a sense, frozen or just at a stance. Huh? Suspended, yeah. It could be some kind of hibernation mode that the body goes into. Yes. In the suttas, it says up to seven days, yeah. yeah. Also seven days. Any of the jhanas, nirodha, seven days. But again, seven days could be just a number. Like, we haven't tried, so... There's a predetermined time, so there's an intention there, and then the intention is at six at the six day mark, mind will come out. Six days later, you're out. Automatically. Automatically, yeah. So basically, the 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 mind uh, percolates back up, and then you know you're in this really nice, blissful, happy state, and then you slowly come out. That's it. Yeah. yeah, you can you can predetermine your. That's why I, I talked about in the beginning of the 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 retreat. Try to f set a time when you want to wake up and see how best your intention is able to do that. Before going to longer nirodas, uh, maybe more than a day, do you prepare yourself in terms of water? Etc. No, no preparation. Huh? So the first thing I experience when I come out of neuro that after this extended period or any time is the is what's known as uh, the fruition experience, right? It's like this. It's this contact with nibbana, and there's just luminosity and just a lot of joy, a lot of happiness. And so I'm just floating around for a bit. Not literally, but just feel like I'm floating around for a bit. And then kind of come back to, okay, here's the body, here's what's going on. I'm hungry, let's eat something, you know. I haven't peed in six days, so let me first pee first, you know, that kind of stuff. Oh. This is regarding what he said uh, about the experimenting 
of uh, pricking or making loud noises to bring, with the intention of bringing someone out of cessation. As the scriptures, uh, what I have, I have read, uh, it is a very akushal kamma to do so. Akushal? Yes. To wake somebody out from of, cessation? Uh, yes, to a noble person, like hmm. pricking. And it will have uh, <laughs> 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 consequences. Uh, this is where we have to bring in the ethics, right? Yes. And just see what's the best way of doing so, it. Yeah, I know. Uh, science. The first word, yeah. meaning when I, the first word I spoke. Yeah, yeah. To whom? Well, for, for, for some time I don't speak at all, actually. Yeah, yeah. And then, uh, let's eat something. <laughs> let's eat something. Well, I, okay, so the way I did it was six days, Niroda, one day just all taking care of activities, people calling me, uh, answering messages, having a snack, then go back to Niroda. Yeah. I know, yeah. So I don't know how many people actually know what happened with that, but the, the, the thing that happened was... Uh, I was, yeah, well, this was during the, the pandemic time. So I was in Niroda, sitting in a cave. I had a friend who was my caretaker who had his own house in Uttarkashi. So I would walk, the, the idea would be six days I'd be in the cave and then one day I would go to his house, get my replenishment and all that stuff and then come back. But this happened as... I think probably a few days later or something, the, the lockdown happened. So they came to the cave to find me, found me non-responsive, tried to shake me out, apparently, could not, took me back to the house, laid me on the bed, and sent a message to David, David Johnson, saying, this is what's going on, what do we do, uh, is he dead, is he in a coma? And uh, David said, uh, well, if he said six days, it's been three days. Wait for three days. Everything should be fine. <laughs> so after three days, I found myself in the bed, looking up at the lights. No, no, no. Well... <laughs> But the, when I opened up my eyes, you know, it was luminous and everything, and then there was all this light. And the thought that arose was, I'm not in my cave. I'm somewhere else. I must have done it this time. I went beyond six days somehow, and now I'm dead. <laughs> that was the first thought. Now I'm dead. I'm now gone to heaven or something. <laughs> so... Yeah, that was that was a story. So then after that, I had to stay at his house and continue with my practice. And then six days on, on in Naroda, one day giving classes. Six days in Naroda, one day giving classes. This is from like March to August or September of 2020. Six months, six months, six months. Six 
Uh, the going in six days. I mean, I tried it just to see if I could do it, and then just kept doing it until the pandemic was over, or at least I could leave to do other things. So the idea was I would stay there for like a month. I wanted to go to the Himalayas for like a month, but then because of the pandemic, it took longer. But the ability to go into Niroda was before that as well. A couple of years before that, I was able to do it, but not for that long. Before that, the longest was like... Um, uh, it was like, uh, f- what was it, 40, 40, 46 hours or something like that. No, uh, 52 hours, 52 hours. And uh, that's when David was like, uh, we, we got the championship back, right? Yeah. <laughs> he was always talking about how there were these two students who could go into cessation. He was trying to get them to compete, you know, who could sit longer. And <laughs> that was before I met Delson. Somebody from Indonesia, I'm not sure who. How long does it take for you to get into the station? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's different uh, uh, feeling or uh, mental state when you go like a short cessation, like 10 minutes or 6 days? No, not really. Um, because you're experiencing the, the fruition, which is just this contact with Nibbana, and then the the experience is just I, I don't know if to compare the experiences because they're always the same in terms of the luminosity, the joy, the happiness, the floating feeling. These are not this is not Nibbana, this is after having made contact with Nibbana. That the mind is like that. So the mind is just super pristine, clear. Uh, yeah, you you kind of you know you you know something happened that I could touch something. There was some shift that happened, and then the rest of the series of stuff that happens. Uh, there was a time when uh, we were meditating in my cabin. One time, do you remember this? I'm not sure what you're say. Where you were, you were asking you had to peek. Oh yeah, actually, it was one of the first times that I meditated with Delson in private and. There was just a sense that there was a vacuum, a vacuous space over where he was supposed to be sitting, but my eyes were closed. So then the thought came in, like, you better check and just, because it'd be really cool if he's just disappeared. (laughs) (laughs) So I just peeked my eyes open to make sure he was still there. (laughs) So this was the fruition experience that I was doing, that, that he was like feeling that there was nobody there. That's separate from Nirodha. This is making contact with Nibbana and using Nibbana as an object. So the mind basically lets go completely of everything and then goes to the unconditioned state and just remains there. It's just a cycling through Nibbana over and over and over again. Right. The intention is instead of going to Niroda, make contact with Nibbana directly. Oh, yeah. And how is, your, how is your experience different when you come out or just in general? Again, just very peaceful, very happy, you know.
There's just a lot of rest in that. Bragging rights. <laughs> That's what I always say, bragging rights. But it's just, you know, I mean, this is all just mental dexterity to be able to go here and there and all of that other stuff. The important thing here is what wisdom is cultivated from it. Well, I lost a lot of weight. and they think he's dead and they burn they light him on fire and uh, nothing happens afterwards so that, that sutta kind of implies that the body's indestructible so so maybe Bharat will no? okay you can do that in <laughs> there are multiple beings, people that are just sitting, they've been sitting for hundreds of years, yeah. things like that, some in Russia, some in other yeah. places, some that have been found in caves where they were stolen, even their bodies still exist. Do you think that maybe something's Well, we couldn't really know until we actually asked them what they did. But it's some kind of state of suspended anima animation, for sure. Is everyone's curiosity satisfied now? <laughs> we should do that. I would want to do that, actually, at some point. Yeah. Well, that well, you can watch the video and see that. I mean, that's all getting into like very mystical stuff now. You've really opened a can of worms here. <laughs> yeah, I am like so happy. It's an immense happiness. Yes, absolutely. So the way to understand how somebody is progressing, actually what I would say is that their sense of humor gets better. Right? They're able to take things less seriously. And uh, which means that uh, they let go of, you know, attachments to this or that, attachments to name, attachment to form. Uh, and then the fetters, just so you guys know, let's bring it back to the Dhamma now. Right? The ten fetters are the personal belief, or the belief in a personal self, the, uh, the doubt in Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, the clinging to rites and rituals, uh, sensual craving, aversion, restlessness, conceit, craving for form realms, craving for formless realms, and ignorance. When you become a stream enter, 
you break the first three fetters. When you become a Sakuragami, you weaken the second two fetters. Or rather, I should say, the sensual craving and the aversion. When you become an Anagami, the sensual craving and the um, aversion go completely. And then when you become an Arahat, the restlessness, the conceit, the craving for jhana, craving for formless jhana, and uh, ignorance goes. Now there are different types of sotapanas and things like that also. So you have three types of sotapanas. You have uh, a sotapana who up to seven lifetimes, this is how the suttas talk about it, you have a sotapana who up to seven lifetimes, uh, takes up to seven lifetimes to achieve full awakening. Then you have a kolankala sotapana, which is from clan to clan or family to family. They can go up to three lifetimes. And then you have a ekabija sotapana, one cedar sotapana, and one life before they attain full awakening. Sakadagami takes uh, one more life uh, and then attains full awakening. So the difference between a one-seater Sotapanna and a Sakadagami, the Ekabija and the Sakadagami, is that the Sakadagami, according to the Suttas, can take birth in any of the in human existence or any of the six sensual heavens. But an Ekabija Sotapanna will always take birth in a human existence and then from there attain full awakening. And Anagami is somebody who never returns back to the sensual realms. And there can be five types of Anagamis. There's the Anagami who attains full awakening prior to their death. Just as they're about to die, they attain full awakening. There's the Anagami who attains upon landing, it's called. As soon as they land into the pure abodes, they attain Parinibbana. There's the Anagami who then uh, lands into the pure abodes, becomes an Arahant, and then attains Parinibbana after that. Then there's the Anagami who goes and then with effort becomes an, anar an Arahant in the pure abodes and then enters Parinibbana. And then there's the Anagami who has to traverse through the pure abodes for some time until they become an Arahant and then attain Arahat, uh, Parinibbana. And then there are different types of Arahats too. There are some Arahats who have the six higher powers. Uh, you know, they have the threefold knowledge, being able to see into their past lives, being able to see the arising and passing away of beings, and then they have the destruction of the taints. There are those who have those threefold knowledge plus the divine eye, the divine ear, uh, and then the ability to do other kinds of things like telekinesis of different kinds of powers. Then there are the arahats who have that plus the four-fold analytical knowledges. The ability to uh, teach the Dhamma, the ability to use similes to teach the Dhamma, the ability to penetrate the Dhamma, explain different aspects of the Dhamma using different examples. So the four, I mean, basically, they're a great orator of the Dhamma to be able to teach people. Um, and so there are different combinations of these arhats. And then there are arhats who have none of this except for having liberated the mind. So these are the different types of 
No, it, uh, the suttas say it only happens for anagamis and arahats. Uh, they have to develop the skill. You have to develop it. It's not like it happens to you automatically. And to develop that skill, you have to be able to go into jhana at a predetermined time for a specific amount of time. And then you have to be able to jump from one jhana to the other jhana and then skip jhanas, go from the first jhana to the fourth jhana come down from the fourth jhana to the second jhana, go from the uh, uh, second jhana to infinite consciousness, go down from infinite consciousness to the third jhana, and then the third jhana to nothingness, being able to do this kind of mental dexterity. And then finally, determined for cessation. So it's a skill that's developed. There's no hindrances. No, no hindrances. <laughs> Mind is clear. They all become his friends. Yeah, exactly. No craving. You know, once you attain Nirodha Samapati and then you come out of it, there's no there's no possibility for any of the hindrances to come back. A mind without craving. All right, so. Um, I think you might find them in the Samhita Nikaya. Let me see if I can take a look and see here. You guys broke all the rules. I'll tell you what, Saurabh, it happens at every retreat. Yeah. I'll have to get back to you on that, where it is, but it's there. Plus, you could just look online, you know, search for the 10 fetters, you'll see it. Yeah, last one. <coughs> um, 
Why, you want to know what he looks like? <laughs> Maybe it's not a Mara, but it can be some situation which is... Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Mara is just a personification, can be a personification of hindrances and things like that. Or it could be situations. That's true. Because there's states of Mara, there's psychological Mara, there's the real Mara and things like that. But yeah. Do you see any Mara? Here? I mean, Mara means any kind of situation bothering or kind of... Oh, any kind of situation that bothers you. After Nirodha Samabhati. Oh, no, no. It's all good, man. All right, let's share some merit. May suffering ones be suffering free and the fear struck fearless be. May the grieving shed all grief and may all beings find relief. May all beings share this merit that we have thus acquired for the acquisition of all kinds of happiness. May beings inhabiting space and earth, devas and nagas of mighty power, share this merit of ours. May they long protect the Buddha's dispensation. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu.